Well, good morning. I'm uh, Joe Collins, and welcome to See Me Church. And uh, as you might have guessed from that little intro and from my title slide here, our, our message today is called uh, Global Missions. It's about global missions. Last week, our newest appointed elder, Jerry Lucera, talked about having our dreams fulfilled, and that was a really encouraging time. But now I want to be focusing on the special missions as it's coming up in just a couple of weeks. And I want to put the importance of missions front and center on your heart. So there were these two men. They were stranded on a desert island. One man paced back and forth and he worried and he was worried and he was scared while the other one just sat back and relaxed, sunning himself and enjoying the, the island weather. Eventually, the man that was stressed out about being marooned on the island said to the, first, the second man, how can you be so relaxed? I don't understand. Why aren't you stressed out? I mean, we might die here. We could die of starvation. We may never be found. And the man said, well, I make a lot of money. I make about $10,000 a week. And I'm very faithful to my church. And I tithe 10% of that every week. So trust me, because when my pastor finds out my tithe isn't in the offering plate, he's going to come and find me. <laughs> a lot of times when we talk about missions offering, we, we sort of go straight to the issue of money, the, the importance of giving to missions. We are here in the Western world, in the United States. We have so much. We have so much abundance. It's so easy to beat that drum that we need to give. We need to give more. And we do that a lot. And this is a very generous church. And I want to thank every person in this congregation for their giving. You're very generous people. You're generous to both the local work that we're doing here to support the church, and every year you're generous in our special missions offering. It's a once-a-year offering that we do in our family of churches all throughout the U.S. and in the, and in the I guess, the first world countries. It's something we do every year. We collect some money, a one-time offering. That money is pooled together, and then it's sent to various mission societies that we fund so that God's work can be spread around the globe. And every year you do a tremendous job of that. Last year we, we collected about $30,000. This year our target is about $25,000. That's over and above just the average, the regular weekly giving. And as I mentioned last week, our two mission fields are the Baltic Nordic Mission Alliance. That's the countries in the, the Baltic Nordic countries and the, the, the Russian and Central Asian mission uh, uh, um, areas. So that's Russia, obviously, and then the churches like the one mentioned in the video. In addition to that, we do a smaller uh, offering that goes to local churches. When I say local, I mean in the local of the Southwest United States. We helped support the planting of the church in San Luis Obispo. We've helped support the church in Bakersfield uh, uh, stay, stay uh, in effect in existence as it was going through a rough time. By the way, they're doing much better. I just uh, bumped into the, 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 the new minister that they hired up there in Bakersfield. He's actually a, a retired uh, member of our church, but he was a, he's a teacher in our church, John Oaks. He's moved up to Bakersfield. He's leading the church there. They're doing great. And uh, I was so encouraged to hear that. But, but some of our money goes to helping play situations like that. And then this year, 
We're saying anything over 25,000, if we collect 30 or 35, whatever the number is, anything over, we want to keep actually local here, see me shoreline, because we have some projects, we have some things that we want to develop here, even locally. And so special missions is a really important time of year, and it's really important to the work of God all throughout the globe. And as I said, it's super easy to start talking about money, to kind of boil this all down into a rah-rah charge for you to open up your wallet and to get money out of you to send it over to these mission works or here locally or in the Southwest. But I want to tell you that that is not what I'm going to talk about today. As a matter of fact, I might mention money somewhere in the message. I don't even know if it's going to come out. I don't even know if it's there in my head to mention it. I want to talk about something much greater than just giving money to support local missions. In fact, I want to talk about something even greater than global missions. So I renamed the sermon, God's Global Design. That's what I want to talk about today in our lesson, and that's what I hope you will open up your minds and your hearts to listen to this morning. And so I'm going to ask that we say a prayer. We allow the Holy Spirit free reign over our thoughts and over our attitudes, and then we're going to dive in to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this morning, for this great group of people. Thank you for the worship. It is so meaningful to be able to come and just spend quality time with you in praise and in prayer. Thank you for sharing and encouraging us and reminding us that your kingdom began because of people praying. And if there's anything we ought to be doing as Christians when we come together, it should be praying. Thank you that our worship team has embraced that, that they're helping with that, that people are stepping up and wanting to talk about prayer, that we're spending more time together in prayer. And I hope, God, that that translates into our lives. Thank you for the worship team leading us to praise you, to connect with you, to remind us who you really are and how great you really are and how important you really are in our lives. It's so refreshing. I can't imagine starting church and trying to even sit down and hear a message from your word, hear some powerful preaching without powerful prayer and powerful time of praise. I pray that the spirit now reigns supreme in our lives this morning. Let the Spirit speak to each one of our hearts today to hear what we need to hear today regarding your global design. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to read Revelations chapter 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. 
Then he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who had sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Before I go any further, I want to confess something. The thing I want to confess is that I am a sinner. I do not want anyone here to think that because I'm on stage that somehow I'm above or any better than anyone else in this room. I'm going to confess that yesterday, yesterday for crying out loud, I got into a shouting match with three women and a guy at a park. (laughs) I am embarrassed. (laughs) What was I doing? I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, don't walk over there. Don't walk over there. Don't walk over there. And I walk over there. And the next thing I know, for maybe 10, 15 minutes, we are shouting at each other. I did not curse. I tried not to say anything controversial that I can remember. But I was so incensed by how they treated my daughter at the park. And I just couldn't contain myself. And I should have. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to God that I didn't maintain the self-control that I ought to maintain as a follower of Jesus. And I'm sorry to you that I wasn't a better example to you. We did end with trying to make apologies. And the apologies were, uh, you know, weird and awkward. Questions later. Uh, They were weird and awkward. Because after you lose your self-control for 10 minutes with each other, it's weird to start apologizing. And I have been bothered by this ever since. Now I say this because there's an overarching reality that we need to put into our minds. It needs to be burned into our, our psyche. Whenever we go to God's word and we want to understand what it is that God wants us to understand, there's this overarching reality that we have to, we, we have to know. We can never forget. We can never, we can never put it in the back seat, back, back seat of our minds. And that overarching reality is this. There is more to this life than we, what we experience in this life. It's why I had to confess. It's why I went back and apologized. It's why I feel bad because there is more to this life. If it was just this life, then who cares what I say and do to any person around me? But I believe wholeheartedly that there's more to this life than what we experience. And this overarching reality animates everything I do including stand before you today as a hypocrite, stuck struggling to practice myself what I preach. As we 
dip into Revelations chapter 5, we are going to get a glimpse into this reality that's outside of our experience. Almost the entire book of Revelations is a glimpse into this other realm, this other world, this spiritual realm. The letter itself, Revelation, starts easy enough. It's a, it, the first few chapters are letters to various churches that were near and dear to John the Apostle's heart. John the Apostle wrote the Revelation. It was actually given to him by God. He actually experienced, saw the Revelation. He recorded it. And we have it in the book of Revelations today. And in the beginning of that revelation, it was pretty mundane. It was just warnings and encouragements to a number of churches that John the Apostle was very close to. But beginning in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and beyond, all of a sudden, things get really weird in the book of Revelations. The language changes, the imagery changes, it gets kind of crazy. And ever since it's been recorded, people have been trying to understand the book of Revelations. And they've gone to some really weird uh, outcomes from the book or the letter of Revelations. I'm not going to do a whole study on it. I just want to talk about really just chapter 5, really just the first part of chapter 5. And what I want you to understand is what we're doing when we read, what you're doing when you read Revelation chapter 5 is you're seeing what John saw in this vision when God sort of pulled the curtain back. And he revealed to the Apostle John that there is a world outside of our experience. And that world matters. In fact, it matters more than what matters in this world. And so this overarching reality needs to be burnt into our mindset, not just when we read Revelations, but whenever we live our lives, we need to know that there is something other than what we see and experience in this life. And as we do that, we are going to scratch just the surface of God's global design for humanity. What I'd like to do is I'm going to go back through the section I read, a little bit like kind of verse by verse, and we're going to identify four truths that we learn in this vision that John received from God. We're going to identify these four truths that are truths in this life and in the other life, in this world and in that other world, they are true. And then afterwards, we're going to make some implications based on those truths, and we'll be done. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The first truth that I want to point out that we, that we glean from, from, from John, the Apostle John's vision that he had of this other realm is that God holds the course of human history in the palm of his hand. How does that make you feel? It's interesting, but I think that there's a variety of feelings that people might have. And I think the extremes are, on the one hand, you might feel very comforted. Oh, thank goodness God knows what he's doing and he's in charge and, and I can just trust in that. But then on the other hand, there are those of us that feel like, well, what does that mean about me? And how do I play a part in this? And do I have a choice or is it all just prescripted and I have no say? And that can cause some anxiety. Maybe you feel both from time to time. I don't know. I have felt both. And I can understand and appreciate that that's how you might feel. Or I sometimes feel when I read a passage like that, when I see this glimpse that John had into the heavenly realms, and I see that in the palm of God, the Father sitting on the throne is a scroll. And in that scroll... 
is the destiny of all mankind. It's there sitting in his, in, in his hand. That's what that scroll represents in this vision. Later chapters, that scroll is opened. You get the four horsemen of the apocalypse and a number of other things that happen. But really what that scroll is doing is it's playing out the course of human history. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is a truth. Whether you want to believe it or not, and regardless how you may feel, good or bad about it, God holds the destiny of humankind in the palm of his hand. The imagery is not to communicate that our futures are predetermined, but it is to say that nothing happens outside of the knowledge, permission, action, inaction, whatever you want to say, of God Almighty in heaven. We make choices, but God decides the outcomes. Recently, you know, I was on vacation, my wife and I, and when we returned, we uh, landed in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we were there at about 3.30ish, and our flight was at about 5 that evening, 3.30 p.m. to 5-ish p.m. And when we landed, we realized from the boards that there were a number of flights being delayed. There was weather, there were problems. So we exited, we got a quick bite. Mind you, we were up very early because we had flown from Rome, from Sicily at 3 a.m. before we landed in Charlotte, so we were exhausted and tired. And we got a little bite, we went to the terminal to wait, and sure enough, the board said our flight was delayed one hour. And after an hour, we got up, and we all lined up, and then the board said flight will be delayed for a half an hour. And so everybody in the terminal looked around, we didn't know what to do, we sat down, there wasn't a lot of communication, Half an hour went by, we got back up, we stood in line, get ready to be on the plane, and then it was delayed another half hour. So we sit down, we don't know what to do, we're sitting around waiting to see what happens, and then they start telling us various reasons for the delay. And the, the reasons were different from, from moment to moment. Sometimes it was weather, one time it was that the plane was just delayed, and then we saw the plane land. It actually came in and, and, and everybody boarded off, and we were like, the plane's here. We got up in a line, another half an hour delay. Waited a half an hour. Then we, then they came on and said, well, we got a pilot, but we got no flight crew. So we're waiting for the flight crew to get here. Another half an hour delay. And on and on it went until 1 a.m. when it said canceled. <laughs> and we were in this terminal that was being remodeled. So there were wires hanging out of the ceiling. There was no carpet on the floor. There was not enough seating. We had pregnant women with little toddlers. We had elderly people. We had me walking around like a zombie. I literally laid down on concrete. There was no carpet. I slept for four hours on cold concrete. I was so tired because there was nowhere to go. We go to the, to the desk of AA and say, hey, what's our next option? And they said, well, your next flight that you can get is 3 p.m. the following day. Great, we just need a place to sleep. No place to sleep. No room for you. We had a near riot in the terminal. All of the hundred or so passengers that were supposed to be on that plane started losing their minds. Cameras were being taken out. We were filming. We were leveling accusations and, and back and forth. The security came down. It was a bit crazy. My wife got a petition going in the line. <laughs> We are going to protest American Airlines for their treatment of people. 
at 3 a.m., the manager walks out and goes, you guys have rooms. You could have said that at one. We got our room, thank goodness. We were able to sleep. We got up the next day, caught the flight at Fleet Tram, and made it home on Saturday. No worse for the wear. So I have a question, though. Did American Airlines intend, when I boarded the flight at 3 a.m. in Sicily, that flew to Rome and then Rome to Charlotte, did they intend for me to be delayed 24 hours in Charlotte? Was that their intention? Probably not. But were they responsible? Absolutely. They were responsible for my delay in Charlotte. This is similar to how God works the course of human history. There is so much going on here. I can't really explain it all, but what I know is this, that we have the ability to change the course of our lives. We can make choices, but somehow God makes the decisions. And in the palm of his hand, those decisions stay. They don't fall out. Nothing happens outside of God's will or purpose for your life. You don't have to be afraid of the Donald. You don't have to be afraid of Hillary. You don't have to be afraid of Kim Jong-il or global warming or any other thing that's being pushed out there as panic mode, panic time. The world's coming to an end. Run with your hair on fire. You don't have to worry about any of that because it's in God's hand. We have a great and we have a glorious God who holds the destiny, the course of human events in the palm. He's not even using two hands. <laughs> it's in the palm of his hand. Somehow he figures it all out. Truth number two. Revelations chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Inside of it, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside Truth number two, the state of every man and woman before God apart from Jesus Christ is utterly hopeless. God holds the destiny of the, the course of human history in his hand. There is not a single man or woman alive apart from Jesus Christ who can open that scroll, who can reveal that destiny, who can bring that destiny to another person, who can share God's will and purpose with another person because there's not another human being alive who has ever lived who is worthy to open the scroll. When an angel asked for someone to come forward and open the scroll, the silence was deafening. I confessed my sin I know I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to open the scroll of God's plan and purpose for humanity. I am not worthy to walk into the throne room of God. And neither are you. And neither is anyone you know. And neither is anyone who has ever lived on this earth. No one is worthy of that. 
because we are sinners. And then quietly in that silence, you hear John maybe quietly at first start weeping. He's weeping and louder and louder his weeping goes to the point that he's wailing. And he's wailing because without someone being able to open that scroll, without someone being able to reveal the plan and purposes of God, the grand design for human history, there's no hope for any person to be saved. An apostle named Paul, colleague of John, he said, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The state of every man and woman before God apart from Jesus Christ is utterly hopeless. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Truth number three. The greatest news in all world history, in all the world's history is that Jesus is worthy. He has made God's will and purpose known to all mankind. It's tragic that there's not a human alive who can do anything about their stance before God. They are utterly hopeless, but it's glorious and it's wonderful that Jesus can. There is one and only one in all of human history who can open that scroll because he is worthy. And he's described as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, triumphant, a lamb who looked as it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne room of God, encircled by every living creature with seven horns and seven eyes, who took the scroll right from the hand of God. Imagine that scene. He just walks right in and he just takes it right out of God's hand. No question, no doubt, no insecurity, no fear, full confidence. He just walks right in there and he takes that scroll. Throughout the beginning of time, men and women have come and gone. None of them, not even the noblest, the kindest, the strongest, or the greatest were worthy to open the scroll except one Jesus Christ, the line of Judah, the root of David, triumphant, slain but alive, worthy of our worship, all-powerful, all-knowing, equal to God the Father in heaven. That's what all that imagery is telling us. When he, when he walks into the throne room of God, that alone should alert you that this is someone special because no one gets to walk into the throne room of God who's not worthy. But he just walks right in. He's triumphant. He's encircled by four living creatures and the elders. All of creation is bowing down and worshiping him, staring at him. He has seven horns and seven eyes. That's a picture of perfect power and perfect knowledge. All-knowing, all-powerful. And he took 
the the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Again, the apostle, not the apostle Paul, but Peter, another colleague of John, another apostle, he said this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which, by which we must be saved. The greatest news in all the world is that Jesus is worthy and he has made God's plan and purpose for all mankind known. So let's talk about implications. What does this mean for you and I today? The passage ends, I'm not going to read it, but it ends with just this incredible celebration in heaven, this great praising of God and of the Lamb for taking the scroll. And now we get into our four implications. Okay? I'm out of order here. Oh, sorry. Last truth. <laughs> I skipped a truth. Forgive me. I won't recap. We'll just get through it. <laughs> okay. Holds the course of human history. State of every man before God is... Utterly hopeless. The greatest knowledge is Jesus is worthy. And finally, in verse 8, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The final truth that I want to point out is that the atonement of Christ is both is, is all is global, local, and glorious. The last image here is of Jesus having taken the scroll and he opens it and he begins to proclaim the, the, the will and purposes of God to all mankind, to all humanity. And there's this incredible worship going on there in heaven with the prayers of God's people coming up before God. And they start singing a new song because the scroll is open. People now know the will and purpose of God. And there's three things that jump out at me. The first one is a question. Who has Jesus purchased with his blood? And the answer is every tribe, language, people, and nation. So Jesus' atonement, the atonement of Christ, is a global atonement. World missions is absolutely part of what we do as Christians. If we were only to care about the people that are right in front of us, we would be failing at the purposes of God. We are to care about the other and the people who are out there and over there. Because God's design is actually global. The second question, for what purpose did he purchase them? The answer, to serve as priests. There's a local component to God's will for mankind. It's for each follower of Jesus, each person who has been purchased to act as a priest to their neighbor, to their people, to their friend, to their family. And then last question, to what, end, to what end did God do all this? What end did Jesus purchase us for? And the answer is to reign on the earth. God's plan is glorious. 
It's ultimately to return mankind to their proper place over all creation. The atonement of Christ is global, it's local, and it's glorious. So we now have the four truths. Then the passage ends with this praise and celebration going on in heaven. And now I want to talk about four implications. The first one, if it is true that God holds the course of human history in the palm of his hand, then let us pray when, with confidence when we bring our needs, wants, and desires before him. Think about it for a minute. If God really is sovereign over all of mankind, then we ought to be confident when we go before him in prayer. We should not be afraid. We should not be fearful. We should not be cowering. We should not be hiding other than the fact that we should be humble. But we can go to God in confidence. I so thank Sherry for her words about prayer. And I so thank the worship team, as I said in my prayer, for the focus on prayer. And if anything comes out of that, I would hope and ask that you, it revolutionizes your prayer life, that you become confident in your prayer life. Because God is sovereign and he holds all of it in his hand. The second implication, if it is true that the state of every man or woman before God apart from Jesus Christ is utterly hopeless, then let us put our trust in Jesus completely. Let's not trust in our own strength. Let's trust in his strength. What does that look like? What do you think of when you think of putting your trust into Jesus Christ? Certainly prayer is one of that. But I think it also, it also looks like hitching your wagon to his train. There's a lot of choices out there. You can choose any number of other gods that you want to follow. You can even choose no god. You can even choose undecided. None of those are going to get you to the end that Jesus has in mind for you, to reign with glory. And so putting your trust in Jesus looks a lot like just hitching your train to his wagon. Does it mean you're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. It just means that you're on the team, that you're moving in the direction. Let us put our trust in him completely. Third implication. If it is true that the greatest news in all the world is that Jesus is worthy and has made known God's will and purpose to all mankind, then let us be worthy also and let's live accordingly. I confess my sin. I was not living accordingly yesterday. I feel terrible about that. I don't want to be like that. My question to you is, what sin have you not confessed? What, what change in your life or behavior do you need to make so that you can live accordingly? You can also try to measure up and to be worthy. You're not going to be worthy, but you can, you can live accordingly. If there is something that you need to get off your chest, I beg and plead with you, do it today. Get it off your chest. If there's a decision you need to make to make uh, to, for different life choices, I beg you today, make those different life choices. But we are called as, uh, if it is true in the, in the unseen realms that Jesus is worthy, then we need to be worthy as well. And lastly, if it is true that the atonement of Christ is global, local, and glorious, then let us go willingly to our people, give generously, and serve 
selflessly for the sake of his atonement. If it is true that it's God's plan for all humankind to be reconciled to him and Jesus is the way, then we have an obligation to tell the people we know. We have an obligation to go to our oikos, to go to our family, to our friends, to our households, and let them know what Jesus has done for us and what he's doing for them. And we have an obligation to give generously to help advance that work. And lastly, we want to serve selflessly. We want to lay our lives down for the sake of Jesus' atonement. So four truths, four implications. I'm going to close with a short story. It's about a Romanian pastor named Joe Son, Joseph Son. He lived in Romania during the last century when Romania was communist. He was persecuted under the regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. He recounted a time when he was being interrogated by six government officials. He said, during an early inter interrogation, I had told an officer who was threatening to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over this country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man has to say because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. <laughs> Another official who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying and I had kept a low profile because I wanted so badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity, but now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. But now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. If it is true that the atonement of Christ is global, local, and glorious, then let us go willingly to our people, give generously, and serve selflessly, laying our life down for the sake of that atonement. So we're talking not about global missions. We're talking about God's global design. That design is for every one of us to hitch our wagon to Jesus' train. That design is for every one of us to come before him in confidence. That design is for every one of us to live worthy. That design is for us to share Jesus' atonement with the world around us. So that's going to look like what? It's going to look like 
Going, giving, and serving. We do those three things, and the mission's contribution is going to be great. Our local mission effort is going to be great. And at the end of the day, God wants us to reign gloriously with Him. So rather than thinking about global missions in two weeks, I want you to think about God's global design for your life. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, it all starts with the ABCs. Admit you're a sinner who needs to be saved. Believe that Jesus is Lord and covenant with Him at baptism. I'd love to tell you more. If you're interested, talk to me, my wife, or someone who invited you today. Thank you for being a part.